Good morning. Thank you for joining us online. We are in the fifth week of a series in Ephesians called Grace to Know and Grace to Go. And today I'd like to talk to you about Paul's prayer for your power. And we're going to be in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. And I would just say on the side that we are very excited about gathering back together in the building uh, starting on November 1st. Uh, we'll start with one service at 9 a.m. Okay, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is one of the most profoundly doctrinal and yet intensely practical books in the Bible. It's not a situational letter. It's what they call a circular letter. A situational letter is when Paul is addressing a church that's kind of blown it, like Galatians were legalistic and, and the, the letters to the Corinthians. Those are situational letters. He's addressing a situation. Circular letters are written for uh, different churches to be circulated around a region, and they're generally more doctrinal in their emphasis, and that's how Paul is writing to the Ephesian church. It's, it's thought to, in the early manuscripts, um, it didn't say Ephesus, so that's why they think it was a circular letter. Romans is a circular letter meant to be passed around to different churches. And so Chris and Frank and John in their previous sermons all, all mentioned Paul's general writing style he presents his doctrinal teaching in the first part of the letter, and then he, he presents the practical application in the second part of the letter, and they've referred to it, we refer to it, as indicative and imperative. And the indicative is what's true, what's real. The gospel is what's true and what's real. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all doctrinal or indicative, and then the second three chapters, four, five, and six, are the imperatives. And so when we get to those chapters, four, five, and six, and we'll finish three today, but when we get there, we, we can't just teach the imperatives. We've got to draw them back to the indicative and, and talk about we do this because of the gospel, out of a grateful response of what Christ has done. And so with that, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in today. Uh, kind Father, thank you for this opportunity, and it seems I'm always asking that you would be the teacher here. Lord, uh, speak to us. Uh, confront us as necessary, affirm, encourage, and bless us, uh, not, not for just our good, but for your glory as a church. So we commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't think we pointed out yet in our series, unless I missed something, that this letter to the Ephesian church is profoundly Trinitarian. It seems that every few verses, Paul is mentioning the Father, the Son, and or the Holy Spirit, and it's both abundantly clear and concise in Ephesians 2.18. It says, for though Christ, for through, sorry, for through Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And so, Spirit, Father, Christ. And then in our verses for today, in verses, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, here's where it speaks of the Trinity. It says, I bow my knees before the Father, verse 18, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner person, verse 16, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, that's 17. And so the Trinity, we want to talk about the Trinity for a little bit today, 
by way of introduction, I'd like for us to consider the Trinity for a few moments. It's been said that the concept of the Trinity is mysterious and that we will never fully understand the Trinity this side of heaven. But it's also been said that if we don't do a good job exegeting or interpreting the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it will negatively affect all of our theology and practice because our understanding of the Trinity seeps into every other area of Christian belief. So it's important. My first response to that is, yikes. You know, we, we can't understand it, but we need to understand it. Where's the balance here? So what Paul is saying through this letter to the Ephesians is that Christian faith and practice must at all times be rooted in the tri-unity of God. Be rooted in the tri-unity of God. All that God is and all that God does flows out of His tri-unity. In a book called Delighting in the Trinity, it's the best book on the Trinity out there, Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves, he writes this, for it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be Trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God, the source of all delight. I'm just going to read that again. For it is only when we grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that we really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God, the source of all delight. Makes you want to read the book, huh? This is why Paul prays back in chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know what is the hope of his calling. Or it could be that that's just one of my favorite verses. So my, my best attempt at a concise overview is this. You and I were created in the image of the triune God, the Latin phrase imago Dei. Most of you will be familiar with that phrase, image of God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have dwelled together in infinite relational harmony for all of eternity. There is a pure, infinite, perfect love that is never strained by conflict or competition or polluted by self-centeredness. So powerful is this loving relationship that some theologians have suggested that this Trinitarian relationship is like an eternal dance, with each member of the Trinity deferring to and delighting in the other. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read it yet, you need to read Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis described it this way, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic pulsating activity a life almost a kind of a dance. And then Tim Keller, a contemporary, elaborates on this, on this concept in his early book, uh, 20, 
2009. It's called The Reason for God. It's one of his early books. He devotes a whole chapter. It's chapter 14 of his book, The Reason for God. It's called The Dance of God. The idea of the relationship of the Trinity as a dance can be traced back to some early church fathers, particularly this guy named John of Damascus. They had a word for it, perichoresis, perichoresis. It's a Greek word. And I want you to notice the, the, the root for our word choreography is in here. And this is how that, this concept of this dance, this eternal dance came to be. Uh, this refers to, in particular, some, it's either a set of circle dances or a particular circle dance that first century Greeks engaged in in festive occasions. And that's where this idea of the Trinitarian dance came out of. And as believers, we are invited into this dance as we enter into a relationship with God. We don't become gods. That's a, that's a Mormon thing. That's not what we believe. We're still subjects to, of God. Uh, but we enter into this dance. We've been invited to enter into this dynamic, eternal dance of love. And entering, to this, entering into this dance will affect how we relate to one another as it flows directly out of how the three persons of the triune God relate towards one another. So in other words, we can learn about, a lot about community and connecting and relationship through understanding the Trinity and seeing what comes out of this triune, triunity of God. If we had to condense the whole book of Ephesians into just two words, those words would be union and unity. Union with Christ and the unity of the saints, which we talked about last week. But both of those words speak of a deep, deep connection. Our union with Christ gets us on the dance card, so to speak. And our unity as believers flows directly out of the triunity of God. So here's the big idea. With that said, and hopefully that's beginning to make sense about the, the Trinity. It's, it's worthy of our study and our contemplation, and that's a great book. Here's the big idea for today. In chapters 1 through 3, we'll finish 3 today. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul is telling us that the triune God is ever-present in the church today to bring into effect all that Jesus Christ accomplished in redemptive history. Let's just slow down here. Sometimes I get going too fast. The triune God is ever-present in the church today. They're all at work in the church today, Big C Church, to bring into effect all that Jesus Christ accomplished in redemptive history. That's why Paul is writing to the Ephesians. In chapter 3, notice in verse 1 and 14, they both begin with the same phrase, for this reason, or the equivalent, depending on your translation. I've been reading from uh, and teaching from the New American Standard. So verses 1 and 14, same phrase, for this reason. It's also important to note 
that this prayer that we're going to look at in, in verses 14 through 19 is very similar to the hymn of praise that was back up. Chris spoke on this, chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 14. And this prayer also is, a, is one long run-on sentence just like that one was. So this is one too in the original language, no punctuation, one long run-on sentence. And so Paul's prayer here in chapter 3 contains four parts. And here's what's so important for us to see in this. Each part, and we'll look at these, but each part builds on the preceding part. We could think of this prayer as a flight of stairs. We could think of this prayer as a ladder to climb. And the ladder or the stairs would take us to a landing. And that's the idea. That's the, the concept that I want to promote. So here are the four parts. Number one, that they may be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Number two, the second part of the prayer, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. This is what Paul's praying for. So that we experience Christ's love for us. I love the way Frank talked about it a while back. He talked about, I don't know if I have the exact phrase right, but when doctrine and doxology, which is worship, so when doctrine and doxology interact, we experience God. And for the most part, we need both. We need good doctrine, but we, but we also need worship, and, and, and when those two come together, we experience God. And then the fourth one, so that they may continuously be filled to the fullness of God. So Paul's praying for us, you and me, to be strengthened, Christ may dwell in our hearts, that we would experience Christ's love for us, and that we would be continuously filled to the fullness of God. And we'll see more of this in chapter 5. It talks more specifically about that. And then the chapter, this chapter 3, closes with a, a doxology of worship and adoration. So let's go back and look at these four parts of, of Paul's prayer. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It's the intro to Paul's prayer. Paul's posture here is really significant. He says he bows his knees to pray. Most of the time, the Jewish religion of that time, prayer was done standing. So this is a little awkward, or, or, or it's not awkward, but it's, it's new that Paul would say, I bow my knees. Now, I, I personally, maybe it's my Catholic background, I don't know, but I, when I pray, I like to get on my knees. It's, I like to position myself in a position of humility before God. Even if I'm still proud of my heart, my heart I'm, I'm, I still want to get on my knees. And, and that, that's, where, that, that's what Paul's reflecting here. Paul's humility and submission to God. And then he says, before the Father. And that is a reference to the spiritual adoptive fatherhood of God toward all who believe in Christ. As we talked about last week, we've become a new family. We've become a, a new nation of sojourners on this earth whose real home is in heaven. And moving on to verses uh, 16 and 19 of chapter 3, this is where Paul starts the prayer. Paul prays 
for an inner strengthening so that we may continually be awakened to God's presence and power. Verse 16, Paul prays that God might strengthen us. The literal translation of this in the Greek language would be that he may give you to be strengthened with power. That he may give you to be strengthened with power. The Greek word translated power here, and most of you know this, or many of you will know this, is the same word we get our word dynamite from. And it's important to acknowledge that this is, this is the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit's radiant power. It's not our power. It's not our will. It's all of the Holy Spirit's. One theologian talks about radiant power working in us and through us. Verse 17, Paul prays that Christ might dwell in your hearts. Building on verse 16, Paul is praying for a strengthening of our soul, that it would be continuously be making more and more room for God, that we might grow in our experience of the presence of Christ himself within, in our hearts. Jesus Christ becomes the permanent, a permanent abiding resident in our heart. Back in the 50s, a pastor... Uh, wrote a sermon called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it became a, a, a very famous tract. And I think that they made a book out of it. But when I was first a believer in the early 70s, I early on got my hands on this tract. And uh, Bob Munger, when I was at Fuller Seminary, he was a chaplain there. So he'd just hang around this godly guy. It was just great to have him there. But this, this sermon that he wrote and published, and you can find this online, and I'll, leave, I'll put a, a link in the notes section, uh, and, and you can go there. But my heart, Christ's home, he described our heart or our inner being as a house. And the idea was that we invite Jesus into our house, and then, but he, want, he gets up and he wants to go into all the other areas of the house. Like he wants into the bedroom. He, he wants to get in there, and we're like, no, uh, no, don't go in there. Or he wants to get in the, in the closet where some of our skeletons are, and we get in front. Now, I, I've been meaning to deal with this stuff, uh, so yeah, let, let me deal with it, and then I'll, I'll let you in. But what, what Munger is saying in My Heart Christ's Home here is that we need to give Jesus access to every part of our life, and that's, that's, a, that's what... That's what Paul is praying for the church here, that, that Christ might dwell in our hearts and that he would have total access to our lives and to our hearts. And then verses 18 in the first part of 19, it's called 19a, Paul prays that we might begin to grasp the incalculable dimensions of Christ's love for us. Building on verse 17, this, this kind of dimensions metaphor, which is a continuation of back at the end of uh, chapter 2, Paul talks about we're, we're a temple, we're bricks in a temple. Uh, Paul used that. It describes how, how Christ's love for us begins to sanctify and transform us from the inside out. And sometimes in our lives, Christ's presence explodes into new areas. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you haven't. Sometimes it explodes. And maybe that happens at conversion. 
But most of the time, mostly, it's a slow and steady transformation. Mostly, it's not moving as quickly as we'd like it to move in terms of change and transformation and sanctification. Here's what John Stott said about this verse. The late, great missiologist, theologian, pastor John Stott. He says this, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass, to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles. That's what he's referring to here in this, in this letter, the Jews and Gentiles together in a church. It was difficult. He said, okay, especially the Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. That's what Paul is praying here. And then the second half, second part of verse 19, Paul prays that we may be filled to the fullness of God. If verses 16 through 19 were stairs, this verse would be the landing, filled to the fullness of God. That's where we're headed. We won't get there this side of heaven, but that's where we're headed, and we want to move as, as, as far along as we possibly can, filled to the fullness of God. To add yet another contemporary metaphor, it'd be like filling your car up with gas or, or charging it if it's electric. Chapter 5, when we get there, Paul will talk more about our need to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And we get all of the Holy Spirit at salvation, but we still need to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. It's part of that already, not yet. Why do we need to be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit? My answer to that is because we leak. Because we leak. We need to be regularly and consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. What Paul is talking about here is the radiant power and presence of God. God himself that we are being filled up with. What the church already is in principle, it is increasingly to realize in its experience of God himself. Let's just look at that again. That's kind of heavy. What the church already is in principle, it is increasingly to realize in its experience of God himself. Let's just be clear. God wants you and I to experience Him. God wants you and I. That's what Paul's praying for you in this passage. That's what he's praying for me. It's okay for us to cry out that we want to experience God. Verses 20 21 is Paul's doxology. He's closing out the chapter. Paul closes this prayer, this chapter, with that doxology. A doxology, in case that's a new word for you, is a, it's a short statement. Sometimes it's a poem, a prayer, a hymn, a praise to God. There are doxologies that are located all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament alike. They're usually placed at the end of a unit of Scripture that the author wants us to view as particularly profound. 
like this prayer that he prayed. And, and, and it's almost like Paul, as the author, pauses at the end of this prayer just to reflect and just to worship. And he wants us to do the same. In uh, the Psalms, we'll often see, as you read through the Psalms, you'll see the word selah, selah, selah. And, and selah in the Hebrew language means pause and reflect on what you just read. This is very similar. Doxology is very similar to that. And then at the end, we, we, see, we see the words, to him be the glory. To him be the glory. And I'd like to focus on that word glory as we close today. As we close and summarize what Paul is seeking to communicate here in this passage, I want us to consider the word glory and its implications. Typically, to glorify, to glory or glorify means to praise, to enjoy, to delight in someone or something. While that is certainly true, there's another dimension to glory that I want to introduce or remind you of for us to consider. There has been a few times in my Christian experience where I've been in a room that was really thick with the presence of God. That doesn't happen nearly as often as I wish it did. Uh, I've been in that space a few different times. And when I'm in that space and the presence of God is just thick in the room, each time it felt like something or someone was kind of pushing me to the floor. That's how it felt. And, and it, it reminds me of Revelation chapter 1, where John encounters the risen Christ. And remember, John was Jesus' best friend. They're familiar with each other, and yet when John experiences the risen Christ in Revelation 1, he falls on his face before God. Why am I saying that? To better understand how, how the glory of God affects humans, I'd like to point out that the Old Testament Hebrew word for glory literally means weight. There's, there should be another word. It's the next slide. Weight. Yeah, there it is. Did I spell that right? Yeah, I think I did. So anyway, it means weight. I, I, I didn't want you to think it meant W-A-I-T. It means weight. That's what it means. Here's how we can think about it. If you and I were to drop a brick into a bucket or a pool of water, the brick would disrupt and displace the water in the bucket, or it would send ripples throughout the pool if we dropped the brick in. Why? Because the rock or the brick has more glory than the water. So you drop the brick in the bucket, it displaces the water, disrupts the water, sends ripples because the brick has more glory, more weight to it than the water does. When God's glory moves into the church or into our lives, which is what Paul is praying for in his doxology, everything is disrupted and displaced as God's glory ripples through. I'm wondering if this season in, our, uh, in the life of the church and our country is, in one sense, the glory of God rippling through 
us and letting us know that things are changing. I don't know. Pastor and theologian Tim Keller talks about it this way. There's a difference between God as a concept and God as a reality. A difference between God as a concept and God as a reality. This is what Paul is praying for, and he's also demonstrating this for us as well in his letter to the Ephesian church. When God is only a concept in our lives, it doesn't deeply stir us. It doesn't deeply change us. God as a, a concept tends to fit in with, with our own belief system, our own sense of morality, our own code of ethics. God as a concept doesn't seem to do much to change our agendas, doesn't change our plans too much, <clears throat> doesn't really change our goals. Have you ever had a moment in your life when God moved from being a concept to a reality? It's important that we think of that. For some of us, it may have been in our conversion experience, but if you haven't had that where God has moved from concept to reality, you might not be a Christian yet. I'm just saying. It doesn't always have to be a dramatic conversion experience. I happen to remember a time when I was a brand new believer and there was this chance for me to move into a house of other Christian guys. I was really excited and I needed, I needed X amount of money to move in. Back then, I think it was just first month. They didn't have to do the pause, the first, last, all that stuff. So I, I needed like, I, I don't know, a certain amount of money and 72 cents. And I had just gotten a job as a waiter in a restaurant and, you know, when you first start, they give you, take that table, you know, so I had a deuce for the whole night. And, and I, think, I, I think it was the same night that I started, and, and I was just all amped up and everything. And I was walking home to where I was living at the time, and I remembered that the next day I needed this X amount of money, uh, 72 cents. And so I, I remember digging into my pocket and then seeing my money on the desk or whatever, dresser, whatever it was, and then I put this money by that, and I had two the penny, what I needed to move into this house with these guys. And for me, it was one of those like, God, you, you're really there, aren't you? I mean, it was, it was this moment for me after my conversion where, where God became a reality in a new and a profound way. It, it, it changed something in me. It gave me a hope and a perspective and uh, a commitment to, to the reality of God. When God becomes a reality in our lives, instead of God fitting into our agenda, God becomes our agenda. The glory of God ripples through our lives and radically changes our priorities. When Paul, what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus is that we tend to grossly underestimate the power of God that is available to us in our lives. It's not this little nine-volt battery of spiritual power that's inside us. It's, it's an entire nuclear power plant of divine might. That's what's within us. What if we lived like we began to truly believe that that kind of power, that dynamite power exists within us? The same power 
that raised Jesus from the dead now indwells us by his Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying to us here. Paul is saying that we ought to both request and anticipate that God will overcome big sins, bad habits, and make us into these passionate followers of Jesus, both individually and as a church. As the person of Jesus Christ and the dynamite power of His presence moved from concept to reality in your life. If you would like to talk to somebody or if you'd like to pray with somebody at the end of our gathering, or even right now, you can request that and someone from our team will jump in and talk with you or pray with you if you'd like to. And if you've never asked Jesus or if you find you're into, in a place where, gosh, I think he's still a concept, it just, uh, you know, in my head, I don't know that he's a reality, then I, I would encourage you to ask for some prayer. Talk with somebody, pray with somebody about that. As we close, I'd like to pray for God's presence in your life, in the life of your family, and in the life of our church. Pray with me. Kind Father, wow, wow. We don't really understand what is available to us in your strength and in your power. Lord, I pray that this trini Trinitarian understanding, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this holy and eternal dance that we've been invited into, I pray that that would become more and more real to us. I pray that we would see and understand your longing for us to experience you in new and profound and deep ways. Lord, we open our hearts and our lives to you, and we ask that you would do in us and through us what we cannot do on our own. Thank you for coming out of heaven into our brokenness, to live a perfect life and to die a criminal's death so that we might have access to God. We thank you for that now, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.